The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I've been uh, practicing uh, in the Zen tradition for a long time, but last year I had the opportunity to do the two-week retreat with Gil, and there's at least one person here that I did it with, and uh, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, Confirming what I knew all along, meditation is meditation. And some of you know me because in the last uh, year I've been helping out with the Dharma School program. And in fact, the last time I was here with this larger group was sitting up there for the Buddha's birthday. And we all sang lovely music together and enjoyed our children. So it is really nice to be here with you again today. A long time ago, Suzuki Roshi wrote a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And at one point he says, meditation practice and everyday activity are one thing. We call meditation everyday life and everyday life meditation. But usually we think, ah, now meditation is over and we will go about our everyday activity. (laughs) But this is not right understanding. They are the same thing. We have nowhere to escape. So I'm reading along and I'm thinking, oh right, meditation, everyday life, and then nowhere to escape, where that pulled me up short. But it's true. If meditation is to be uh, our life, then it can't end when we get up from sitting. Any spiritual practice worthy of the name has to be able to support us in every single moment of our day and night. So a friend of mine recently told me uh, she had been visiting Green Gulch, the Zen Center up in Marin. And she went as a guest, but she's a Zen student, so she wanted to take part in the meditation program. There was another woman who roomed with her who only ever went as a guest and had never dared to enter the meditation hall. So when she realized this woman, Sue, was going to go, she said, uh, oh, well, could I sort of follow you in? And You know, I'll sit at the back. Sue said, there is no back. (laughs) Because in a, a Zen meditation hall, it's set up in such a way, it's, it's a square or a rectangle, and everybody's, you know, there's no back. There might be an altar in the middle of the room, but there is no back. And, but I began to think about this, and I thought, you know, this is how we run our life. Some people are willing to sit in the front row. <laughs> Some are very close to the back door because if they get embarrassed or feel nervous or just plain bored, hey, the exit's right there. We run our life this way to some degree. Sometimes we're willing to jump in and make the big splash. Sometimes we sit on the edge of the pool with our finger in for years. What Suzuki Roshi is saying is, you're already in the pool. It's like asking a fish, how's the water? What water? 
This is our life. Meditation practice is not just something we do here on this cushion. Then there's this other idea that we have, which separates practice out from our daily life. Okay, you know, if I can just get through this big project I have, then I will have time to practice. Or, well, you know, my mother is dying right now and I, I just really need to take care of that and, and then I'll get back to practice. And a friend of mine recently, her father died and she admitted to me, she said, I realized that's what I was doing. I just, I just have to get my father through this and then through this and then through this and then finally I'll be able to get back to practice. She said, it was such an amazing thing when I realized that's what I was doing and suddenly I thought, no, my father is my practice. And then everything changed. Practice and everyday activity are one thing. In the Metta Sutta, it says, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, If you think about your life, those are the four categories. Everything happens in one of those places, (laughs) you know. What else is there? So we don't go to meditation. We don't do Vipassana. We are meditation. There's a very big difference there. Everything is meditation and we are meditation practice. So today what I wanted to talk about sort of is what gets in the way of practicing in this way, in understanding our life this way. So I wanted to share first of all what happened at this retreat last fall with Gil. I mean, there were many things that happened that were amazing. For one thing, the three Zen students were at this retreat got together afterwards and said, whoa, wasn't that liberating? (laughs) Nobody had to be anywhere at any time. (laughs) Whoa, trust. (laughs) And I have to say that when I went back to my group, they were like, oh my goodness, what do we got of a Vipassana teacher now? Because I wanted to make all these changes. (laughs) They were good for them. But what happened in this particular retreat was actually rather amusing because it was a hidden villa. It turns out that the kids at my school are the guinea pigs for the hidden villa garden program. But I didn't know this. I've been teaching there for 18 years and I didn't know this. So there I am on the second day, I'm settling down into the silence. We're having lunch. I'm by myself eating very mindfully. When I become aware that about A hundred feet from me, down below, is the little public garden area where they take the kids on tours. And there's this adorable little group of children. And I'm looking and I'm realizing they're about seven, eight years old. And I'm sort of eating and benignly smiling. You know, this is the teacher in me coming out. When all of a sudden I think to myself, wait a minute, I know those kids. It's the second grade of my school standing down there. And it was as if my mind must have gone directly there because at that moment, one of the little boys looks up and he sees me. I mean, the whole recognition thing. And he starts, and I'm going, gracing like even 
But what I didn't realize, this was only half the class. The other half was up at the barn. And all of a sudden, they come roaring down. They're just so happy to be there. And as they go roaring by, because they seem to be that ready, one of the little boys looks up and says, Is that Misha? Hi, Misha! I'm like, (laughs) thinking to myself, oh, well, so much for the silence. But at that moment, my eyes just filled up with tears. And I thought, oh my goodness. Sometimes I think it would be nice to retire from that teaching to be able to concentrate on being a Zen teacher. In that moment, I thought, wait a minute. These are my teachers. That's them running by, those little seven-year-olds. Well, at the end of the retreat, it was time to go back to school. So one of the last interviews that I had with Gil... I said, okay, so here I am. I am really settled. I am in a state of great relaxation, which he had been talking about. Now I'm going back to 250 very wild and noisy children. How do I do this? And I'm sure you have heard him say this, but I had never heard this before. He said to me, There is nothing for which you should sacrifice your relaxed breathing. My mouth must have fallen open. I was kind of gaping at him. It was that word sacrificed that got my attention. I said, Gil, I sacrifice my relaxed breathing all the time then you should be aware that's what you're doing and ask yourself, why? Huh. I'm thinking, he doesn't teach kids, does he? (laughs) But then I thought, okay, you know, I trust this guy. He's a pretty great teacher. I've had an incredible two weeks, got to the bottom of some really long-term stuff. Hey, I'm willing to try this. Because in that moment I realized I had made, even after all those years of practice, the classic mistake of somehow separating my practice from my job. Even though I had often thought about this and I had often tried to bring my practice to school, I realized there was still this one part that I was separating. So I show up at school and I met by two of my dearest friends, one's the admissions officer, and they look at me and said, whoa, you're like levitating. (laughs) I said, hey, this is what two weeks does for you. But while I was away, I have to say, it was pretty wonderful that my school allowed me to do this because I was at school for a week, and then I took two more weeks off after having had the whole summer off. But... I come back and my assistant librarian has done my job for two weeks. Before I arrive, I read the email three pages long that she has written to me about every single detail that has happened in those two weeks, which was way too much information. But what really became clear was that the fourth grade had given her a lot of trouble. My job 
as the librarian at the school is I read out loud about four hours a day. My job is to get kids to love reading, to love stories, to love libraries. And so every class in the school through fifth grade spends at least an hour a week with me on a schedule in the library. So the fourth graders come on Thursday. So I had three days in which to practice this relaxed breathing. And it was really quite amazing. I would sit in my reading chair, breathe as the children were all running and screaming in as they do because they're so happy to be there, so happy to see me. Where have you been? But as soon as I was in this relaxed state, it was amazing to watch them relax. By the time Thursday arrived, I had this opportunity to talk with them. And I said, okay, you guys are old enough to have this conversation. So I understand that you gave this other teacher kind of a hard time. And I'm pretty surprised because I know you guys really well and you're pretty great kids. So I was pretty surprised by that. And I have to admit a little disappointed, but, you know, be that as it may. I understand that uh, you wouldn't stop talking when she was trying to read to you. And that at some point, you know, she kept stopping and asking you to stop. And at some point she finally moved one of you and that actually made things worse. And at some point she even said to one of you, you know what, if you continue, I'm gonna have to send you back to class. And you said, great. I'm like, that's not okay. But I have to say, I've been thinking about this a lot. And here's, here's the way it's going to work with me. I don't know how it worked with her, but we're going to be real straightforward here. I am not going to ask you to be quiet once I started reading. I am not going to move you. And I'm definitely not going to send you back to class. I'm just going to stop reading. And I'm going to sit here and breathe Pretty, pretty straightforward instruction. You guys understand this? Mm-hmm. They all nodded. Never had another problem. If anybody ever started, you know, to giggle or fidget or whatever, I, I just stopped. I'd put the book down. Begin to breathe. <laughs> well, if you're a fourth grade boy especially, boy, that gets boring really fast. And what happened was, the kids on either side would say, so-and-so, stop it. I never had to say a word. I'm sitting there thinking, Gil, you're a genius. <laughs> I have used that ever since. It is amazing. All you have to do is stop and begin to breathe. And everything calms down with you. I don't sacrifice my relaxed breathing anymore. I don't separate this practice of sitting from my work. But there are challenges to what I call this seamless practice. And the more I think about them, the more I'm uh, coming up with different examples 
and I'm sure that if you think about it, you will come up with your own things that keep you from it. But I'll just tell you a few of the ones that have come to me. The first is the one that I call not my job, not my problem. This is when we ignore something that needs to be done because, hey, we didn't create the situation. How many times do you see a piece of trash on the ground? Well, I didn't leave it there. And yet there is a man who rides his bicycle up my hill, 84, every single day. He's a retired Stanford professor. He is in his 70s, so this is amazing to me anyway because there is no way I could do this. But he doesn't just ride his bicycle up the hill. Every time he sees a piece of trash by the side of the road, he stops his bicycle. He's got a plastic bag on the handlebars of his bike, picks up the trash, puts it in, and bicycles on. Now, any of you who know about riding a bicycle uphill know that you don't want to stop (laughs) if you lose your momentum. But he is not riding his bicycle simply for riding his bicycle. And he doesn't like to be thanked. You know, there are many of us who live on the hill that, you know, as we're going by, thank you so much for keeping our highway clean when you don't even live here. He's just doing it because it's not that it's his job or that it's his problem. It's that it needs to be done. So when we see something that needs to be done, Instead of thinking, oh, well, that's not my job. I'm not supposed to be the one who puts the new toilet paper in the roll in the bathroom. That's somebody else's job. We don't, th- we don't think that way. If our meditation mind is in place, we think, oh, toilet paper, where is it? Oh, there it is. Well, I'll see if I can figure out how to do this. Because part of that is thinking about who's coming next. The next person who comes into the bathroom will not be happy if there is no toilet paper in that roll. So you're giving a gift at the same time. You're doing the right thing because it needs to be done, but you're also doing something for whoever is coming next. The second problem that gets in our way of bringing practice to our daily life is gaining idea. So Suzuki Roshi said, usually when you do something, you want to achieve something. You attach to some result. But our effort should be directed from achievement to non-achievement, which means that we get rid of the unnecessary and bad results of effort. We don't get rid of effort, but the bad results of it. If you do something in the spirit of non-achievement, there's a good quality in it. So just to do something without any particular effort is enough. So what's extra? What is it, those bad results? Pride. Oh, look at what I've done. Competition. I'm doing this because I want to be better than you. Jealousy. Control. There's lots of reasons why we do things. And this practice is wonderful for allowing us to see how when we do something, there's often this whole hidden agenda behind it, which is really kind of impure. 
So when I change the toilet paper, I just change the toilet paper. I'm not really doing it so that, oh, everyone will know I changed the toilet paper. (laughs) Aren't I a good person? (laughs) Then there's the loss of your fresh beginner's mind. Losing, sacrificing your relaxed breathing. Sometimes this happens because of repetitive activity. You do a job over and over and over and over again, and you stop being with it. You go to wash the dishes, and you just start washing, washing, washing. But that was my job at the retreat, was to wash the dinner dishes. And I was struggling because at that point, Everything else had finally settled in my mind, except for one thing, and that was music. My default, apparently, I've known this for some time, but it really, really became clear in this two weeks. The default in my mind is music, and it can be any music that I've ever heard in 54 years. I have an uncanny memory for lyrics. I have an uncanny memory for note construction. And the amazing thing is then my brain just goes and makes up stuff on its own. So I was working really hard to do the noting practice just to keep the music out of my mind. So literally, I had to pick up a fork. In my mind, fork, wash, rinse, stack, plate, wash, rinse, stack. And as soon as I stopped doing that, the music came back. And this, this was like a week and a half. Finally, the music dropped, but it took a week and a half of doing that. But I'll tell you, I really washed those dishes. <laughs> <laughs> to the point, and I thought, I, this is the funniest thing that happened during the retreat. You're not supposed to talk in this retreat at all, including this wonderful couple who did all of the cooking for us. After I would finish with the drying and, and the wash cycle, I had to take all the silver over to this little container, one of those little organizers. And I would come over. Well, the first thing I noticed was that, you know, while certainly the knives were all in their place and the spoons, everything was kind of higgledy-piggledy. So again, I'm trying to keep the music out of my head. So I'm taking all the silverware and I'm stacking it very neatly and then I'm taking the new fresh stuff that's just gotten washed and I'm, you know, so that I'm just spoon spoon, spoon. This is really for my benefit in a sense. But after about four days of this, finally the the man at some point while I'm washing comes over and gives me this big bow. And I'm thinking, what is that about? So I just bowed back because we're not supposed to talk. But the next day at dinner, uh, the woman who was really the head cook, I think she just couldn't help herself. She came over and she made this little bow, and very quietly she said, Thank you for your silverware practice. <laughs> I'm thinking, silverware practice? But then I'm seeing where she's looking, and I'm thinking, Oh, she thinks I'm being really careful here, when in fact it's self preservation at this point. But nevertheless, she was right. This is it. When we stay with what we're doing, the results are amazing and harmony is created. That's the most important thing. The fundamental core value of Buddhism is harmony. 
she felt the harmony of me trying to do the best I could do while she was trying to do, I mean, the food she made was amazing. She was doing her best job and she so appreciated that I was taking such care with this. So repetitive activity can help us if we're paying attention, but it can really be a hindrance if we let it just become repetition and we forget to think about it anymore. We forget to be there with the forks and the spoons. And this happens even when we're not expecting it. So this summer I took two different groups down to Tassajara, my students, and in the morning we were students and worked with the students there. So after you sit meditation, there's a very small work practice before breakfast. And you're often asked to go different places, the dining room to set it up or the kitchen. And over and over, I seem to be asked to go to the kitchen. And because I have all these robes, it takes a little while for me to get out of them. So I was always one of the last people to arrive in the kitchen. So on this day, I get there and I put on my apron, wash my hands, go to the center big cutting board table in in the kitchen where already there are three people doing what I am about to join them for, which is the day before they have baked all of these acorn squash. And I think they were going to make acorn squash soup because what we were supposed to do was take a spoon and scoop out the inside of the acorn squash and put it in one of these buckets, you know, like drywall mud comes in, one of those... Well, when you're cooking six meals a day at Tassajara, that's the size bucket you use. So I get there and my senior student is standing across from me. And then there are two other people. She's doing what the person next to her is doing, which is we've got these big metal spoons, we're scooping out, and then we go bunk on the edge of the bin so that the squash falls down inside. So I see what they're doing. I pick up my squash. Funk. 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 I'm just following along, being a sheep. The assistant cook finally comes over and says, Excuse me, would you all mind using a spoon to get the squash off your spoon so that you don't have to go funk? I look around and I realize, here we've been in this very quiet kitchen. And we're sitting there without thinking, going, funk, funk. So much for harmony. So part of it is repetition that gets in our way, and part of it is following like sheep. We're just doing what everyone else is doing without thinking of the greater possibility. Of course I could have used another spoon if I'd been thinking about how that funking was sounding to everyone else. Then there's the problem of not following through. In everything we do, in every work practice you have, I don't care what you do, whether you're a librarian or you're a computer scientist or you're a university professor or you are a body worker, There is a beginning, a middle, and an end. The beginning of work practice, of any work you do, is coming together with whoever you're going to do this work with, acknowledging them, dividing up the task in a way that feels good to everyone, creating harmony. 
Maybe you work by yourself. So you take a deep breath and you work with yourself in creating that moment of, all right, now I'm about to begin. You gather up your tools in a mindful, thoughtful way. You prepare yourself to begin. Then there's the middle, and that's actually doing the job. And then there's the end, where you gather all your tools up again in a thoughtful, mindful way, return them to where they belong so that people aren't tripping over the broom you left standing out in the hallway. And then gather together with the people who did this work with you, acknowledge their effort, thank them, and intentionally end. Full circle. If even one of these is missed, there is often a feeling of confusion, or irresolution. Oh, are, are we done now? But, but mostly, what I notice is people don't feel seen. What we're always trying to do is really acknowledge each other. Because in so much of our life, we are unacknowledged. I'm going to give you a little exercise to do. When I came back from my second practice period of three months at Tantahar, I went to my local grocery store. And because I was moving very slowly, mindfully, you know, what could be better than three months of meditation and retreat? I didn't approach my grocery store in quite the same way. I always start in the fresh food section. It makes me happy to see all that lovely, fresh, colorful stuff. And uh, so I just rolled my cart there and stood there for a few minutes looking at how beautiful it all looked, just the way it's laid out. And somebody really thought about the display of it. But then I began to notice something very odd. There were people in the fresh food section but they weren't paying attention to each other at all. It was as if nobody else was in the room with them. It was just them and their little cart. If you watch carefully, what you'll notice is people will walk up to a counter of the fresh food, and even if someone else is standing there, they'll just sort of lean over and get what they need. There's there's no eye contact, there's no, oh, excuse me, for the most part. Now, granted, in some places that might be different, but generally speaking, this is what... I've observed it over and over again. We roll our cart along the same way we drive our cars. Out of my way, I'm coming through. We don't make eye contact. We don't want to have to deal with anyone because after all, we're on a mission. We're getting our food. Don't bother me with details like human interaction. This is separating out your practice from your life. Our life is about relationship. Our life is about interacting with everything, the fruits, the vegetables, and the humans. We can't ignore one thing out of efficiency for something else. 
then we've missed the point of being in this moment. Because each moment of contact with whatever it is, is a moment of awareness, is a moment of waking up, is a moment of relaxed breathing. Don't sacrifice your relaxed breathing even for your grocery list. So one of the last things is inattention. And we all know that problem. Inattention to what is in front of us, inattention to who is in front of us, which is what I was just talking about. The inattention to what is in front of us is a little more subtle sometimes. So there's this wonderful story of this uh, Zen master, and he's talking about when he first came to Zen practice. It was a little tiny temple with just one teacher, no other monks. And he's not sure this is where he wants to end up anyway, but you know, he's come, he's interviewing the Roshi. He doesn't understand the Roshi's interviewing him. But he's interviewing the Roshi, and he's, he's thinking about whether he really wants to stay or not. So the first thing that happens is uh, the Roshi says, well, today we have to rake the temple grounds. He says, okay. Well, Zen temples in Japan are designed to have lots of leaves. This is to keep the monks busy. So they, and they are all trees that drop leaves, and this is the purpose of them. So there were plenty of leaves, apparently, that day for him to rake up. So he rakes and he rakes and he rakes. And finally, he's got this enormous pile. And he goes to find the Roshi, and Roshi comes out. And he says, so um, what do I do with all this trash? 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 In people and things, there is no such thing as trash, he barks. And the guy's like, whoa, okay, okay. Well, so what do you want me to do with the leaves? He rephrases. Go to the bathhouse. There are sacks there. Bring those sacks here. So he dutifully brings the sacks, and he and the Roshi stuff those sacks absolutely chock full until there are really no more leaves on the ground. And then he says, take these leaves back to the bathhouse. We will use them for the fire to heat the water later. So as he's taking the sacks, he's muttering to himself, well, so I guess these are trash. Takes them, but he thinks to himself, but all that other stuff, the little the pebbles and the moss, that's the fast trash. And I want to know what he's going to say when he gets back. But when he gets back, there's the ocean, he's sifting through the rest of the pile, which is just all the little leftover stuff lots of little pebbles, moss, you know. And he's separating all the pebbles out into a pile. And he points to them and says, Take these pebbles and put them at the base of all the rain gutters. So he picks up all the pebbles, and sure enough, at the bottom of the rain gutters, there are places where the water has gushed out so much that all the pebbles have dispersed, and this is going to then, you know, make it so that it won't puddle there and flood. So he's muttering to himself, well, all right, so he's figured out what to do with the pebbles. Well, what about the other stuff? <laughs> but he comes back, and all the other stuff the Roshi has gathered up and he's going around the temple grounds, and wherever there is a blank spot between a couple rocks or around a plant, he's pressing the moss or the little bits of detritus into place so that 
by the time they're done, there is nothing left of the pile. And then he turns to the student and says, So, do you now understand? In people and things, there is no such thing as trash. And I love this story for two reasons. The first is, it's really talking about treating everything sacred. You know? there's, there's nothing that's trash. Everything is worth something. You just have to find the right use for it. But he didn't say there is no such thing as trash. He said in people and things. We trash people. We treat people like trash a lot of times. When we ignore them. When we're so busy with our little agenda that we can't take the time of day to look someone in the eye and say, hello, how are you? Or there's always the really old person in the store who can hardly walk behind her cart. It's probably the only time in the day she's gone out or he's gone out and you can't take enough time to have a short conversation. This, this is our life. This is our practice. The last thing that I would like to say has to do with listening, which is partly about what I just said, but how many times have you been speaking with someone and you see their eyes flickering around? Or (laughs) you see their answer coming into their head before you have even finished saying what you were going to say. They're not listening. They're coming up with their snappy reply. It turns out that listening is part of right speech, the most important part. So Suzuki Roshi said, when you listen to someone, you should give up all your preconceived ideas and your subjective opinions. You should just listen to her or him. Just observe what her way is. We put very little emphasis on right and wrong or good and bad. We just see things as they are with her and accept them. This is how we communicate with each other. We have to listen for what's not being said. Years ago, I had very unfortunate misunderstanding conversation with my sister because I wasn't really paying attention to what wasn't being said. I was only trying to prove that I was right. I had a very hard lesson to learn and it took a long, long time to patch that up with her. I would much rather love her and have her love me, then be right. But to do that, we have to know how to listen. We have to know how to see. We have to know how to acknowledge. We have to understand that our meditation practice and our daily life are one thing. So that we can enjoy our relaxed breathing with each other 
You see, that's the part that it took me a little bit longer to get to. Gil was absolutely right. There is nothing for which you should sacrifice your relaxed breathing. But it's relaxed breathing with everyone and everything. That is when we feel real ease in the world. Thank you.